Hello, and welcome to a punch dancing episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinema mechanics, Brett Mosher and Travis Santana, and today we're reviewing part two of our tune in trilogy with 1984's Footloose. We'll jump into five point inspection with MTV, Whiplash, Shaw's Frank Redemption, Superbad, Misguided Adults. But before we do, let's check in on the shop. Oh, hey, man. Uh, have you seen the coloring books and crayons that were out in the waiting area? We've got a customer waiting on breaks, and uh, she's got a bored kid. Yeah, no, I tossed those out. Yeah, they were getting a little worn. I'll grab some fresh ones on the way home. No problem. Absolutely not. There will be no coloring books, no more toys, none of it. Whoa, jump back. What are you talking about? I, it really endears us to our parent customer base. I thought we agreed on that. We did agree. But that's before it turned into a, a circus out there. Kids running around the shop, waving their coloring pages around. What's next? I mean, wait, why, why, why are you hooking up a boombox? Well, I'm not a kid, so I'm going to have some fun. Ooh-wee. Sue-wee. Stop, stop, stop dancing. Up, Customers up. can see you through the window. You, you look like a lunatic. Look, it's not like I'm against kids having fun. Okay, We just did a remodel, and I don't want the kids running around and wrecking the shop already. Kick off your Sunday shoes. Oh, for God's sake, I'll get the crayons out of the trash, but first, let's review Footloose. A small town girl and a city boy must band together with their high school peers to legalize dancing in time for their prom. It's been 10 years since the city council criminalized a bop swirl or twirl after the untimely death of the reverend's son sent shockwaves through the community. Can the two sway the town to cut the rug again, or will the reverend and his troop continue to outlaw the rhythm in them? Alright Travis, we'll jump into five point inspection, but before we do I'd love to hear your quick diagnostic of 1984's Footloose. I thought I had seen a lot of this movie, like kind of just through osmosis, catching bits and pieces on TV. Uh, what I realized is pretty much I had only seen the the tractor, the tractor chicken scene, <laughs> which is scored by uh, I believe it's Bonnie Tyler holding out for a hero, uh, which mm -hmm. I think is has probably been made more famous since then by Shrek. But it was mm -hmm. so bizarre to me to in Detective Pikachu. I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in need of a hero. But it was so bizarre to watch that dramatic song play as these two tractors drive four miles an hour towards each other, which kind of makes sense that that's the only part I've seen of this movie because it's probably not even in the top 10 weirdest scenes in this movie. I, I was blown away at how fucking weird this movie was wall to wall. Um, just a couple random... Uh, where, where do the kids get the tractors and all the dirt bikes that appear throughout this movie? Um, why does this small town have a gymnastics team? I definitely thought that. I was like, of all the things for it to have a gym. As soon as he got on the uneven bars, I looked over. I was like, why does this gym have uneven bars? And not only does this small town have a gymnastics team, but apparently the gymnastics team is so good that they can afford to just kick Ren off of it because he... Uh, is dating the well, preacher's daughter. 
Well, that's the problem is they can't afford to put Ren on the team. Uh, so like, <laughs> that was that was absolutely bizarre to me. Um, the casual oh, yeah, domestic the violence. Bike, yeah, the the dirt bikes also, because if I'm not mistaken, the dirt bikes come up right after a scene about safety or something like that. And then it's immediately all of the kids on dirt bikes just cruising through no helmets all through the car. I'm like, did we just literally had a scene about being safe and they couldn't be less safe? Yeah, two to a motorbike, in fact. Yes. Uh, but yeah, yes. Um, I, I can't remember. Ariel. Ariel gets slapped around by both her father and her boyfriend in this movie. And it's kind of just like, eh, you know, she shows up to school with a black eye and eh, just put some sunglasses on. No further questions. Oh. We'll we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Um, but yeah, it's yeah, a weird no, fucking this movie. movie what, what did you think? It's uh, same thing. I had not seen the tractor scene before. I guess I've seen bits and pieces. Like, I think the most unfortunate and I, it's probably because it's some weird montage. Speaking of which, this movie has three. But of like movie scenes at the very end where uh, was it Kevin Bacon comes in and says like screams, let's party like that's the scene that I remember the most that I think I have seen. And I realized, oh, that's the last what? Ten frames of this movie. Um, but yes, this movie is way darker than I thought it was going to be. Um, it was. I would have thought this was a family friendly movie, and I would not classify this as a family friendly movie at all after watching it all the way through. Uh, but I was very excited when uh, "In Need of a Hero" came out because I do love that song. I didn't realize that this is the first movie to use it. And I was like, "Oh, okay." Uh, don't think it fits in the scene that it is taking place in, but great song. Great energy, you know, gotta love it. Yeah, holding out for a hero who only wins because his shoelace gets stuck. <laughs> He's ready to jump <laughs> like 50 yards away from the tractor. Almost everything Rin does in this movie, like, he's is in spite of himself like it's he's not actually successful or a hero in any any regard whatsoever i mean yeah the the tractor is because he doesn't know how to tie his own shoelaces which is is funny um spoiler alert the whole point of the movie is that they're going to uh get the the what is it the criminalization of dancing removed from the city so or the town so that everybody can dance they don't do that at the end of the movie they don't like what they decide the real hero of this movie is Ren's boss who yes. owns the warehouse he's the real hero who's like actually you know if you want to have a dance they can't do anything once you cross the train tracks and it's like you can just do it in my warehouse if you want to have a dance like he's the real he's the hero we need not the one we deserve I'll tell you that Brett Ren's boss is he's almost on the level of Sam Elliott in the Big Lebowski, where I'm not sure if he's actually a real person, because at the end of the movie, when the <laughs> Reverend and his wife show up to the, the dance and they want to take a closer mm -hmm. look, somehow he materializes behind them in his pickup truck and just kind of gives some sage words. And then in the next instance, his truck is gone and he's just vanished. I'm like, is he a mirage? If you were to tell me there's a fan theory that he's the spirit of the town, I would totally believe it. That he's just, he's an embodiment of the town, and the town wants to dance again, right? He looks at Ren as the way to, to unshackle himself from the oppression of the Reverend and his ill-spoken following. But <laughs> it's, it is such a weird movie. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know if this will fit with any of our five points, but I think the movie... 
you said before we went on the air that you got Oscar bait as your chop shop and you said that this movie kind of came close to it. I really think this movie would be better without Kevin Bacon's character in it. I'm much more interested in the Reverend and his family as opposed to this Chicago oh kid. Dude, I thought the same thing. That's the reason I, the, one of the five points is Shaw's Frank Redemption because I just want to talk, I'm like, he was the most interesting character in the whole movie and he's just kind of used as 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 a tool to move the story forward. Like, to me, like, he is by far the most interesting character and I want to know more about him. Like, well, let's just go ahead. We'll go ahead and, and, and jump into five points here. Uh, we can start with, since we're already kind of on that, Shaw's Frank Redemption. He is such an interesting character to me because at a certain point I thought, and they didn't really do anything with it, um, when he is writing the speech, um, he winds up, there's another, I guess you could even count that as a montage. I didn't even put that in my montage count. When he's talking to all, it's the same speech and they're showing that he's talking to all the different audiences. I'm like, at a certain point, I'm like, are they going with the, the direction that like, at a certain point, he doesn't even believe what he's saying anymore. Like, it's just, it's a script to him, and he's just doing it. And, like, and I thought that that's where they were going to possibly go with him. And they didn't really get there by the end of the movie, but I thought that would have been a much more interesting arc. Because at a certain point, Shaw realizes that everything he's doing, he doesn't actually believe in anymore. It's just an ends to justify means. Because the whole movie basically revolves around the death of his son. And you get almost no context to that, other than the fact that... Ariel kind of does the reveal to Ren over the bridge, like, oh, yeah, that guy who died was my brother, and it was the Reverend's son, and, like, you don't get anything about how that really shook the Reverend, like, he doesn't bring up his son really that much at all, I think the only thing they really kind of imply is when Ren goes and talks to him to ask Ariel to the prom, I think he's holding, it's supposed to be a picture of, of his son. Uh, that's what I died. took it to mean, yeah. But that's it. That's like you just have to kind of take it that there was a speech there. I'm like, that was the Oscar speech right there that they decided to not, they decided to skip over so that we could have a dance fight or dance somewhere else. I'm like, that's that's the speech I wanted to hear was basically between that and Shaw realizing that, you know, through the course of the movie and where two of these are going to get kind of muddled together as this kind of goes into misguided adults is Shaw realizes that, you know, he's pushing the town and the community towards this idea of like, Oh, there's so much, you know, sin and all that. And we morally, I have to be the moral compass of the town that he's actually, there's people taking his words and taking it to the nth degree that he doesn't believe like at the book burning. Yes. And even that loses a lot of impact. Cause it's like, that's where Shaw realizes like who decides who's more like, okay, this is him coming to terms that even he shouldn't be the one deciding kids shouldn't, shouldn't dance, but it's still, it's still so subtle and such an undertone as opposed to him actually really kind of realizing what's going on. Yeah. I, I love the, it, it barely scratches the surface, but I love the idea of a grieving father instead of directly dealing with the grief. He kind of commandeers this whole town uh, for and kind of molds it into the image that he sees as as proper and and you know what would have ultimately saved his son. It's, yeah, safe exactly. But it's so interesting then to see that by him doing that, he's kind of created a monster that he cannot control anymore. Like you said, as the townspeople take his original intent and start expanding it. So I thought it was it was unique because it would have been easy in an 80s movie to have John Lithgow just be kind of a mustache twirling because spoiler, I I don't like organized religion and a lot of the things that it stands for. 
I thought it was going to be very easy to just hate John Lithgow and make him one note. Mm. But when he's kind of constantly pushing back and, you know, hey, I, I didn't participate in getting that English teacher fired because I didn't think he did anything to, to, worthy of getting fired. It was so interesting. Mm. He almost becomes a 3D character, but this movie wastes so much time on dance fighting and montages. They they really spoiled a, a perfect opportunity with, with the Reverend and his whole storyline. Well. And not only that, and I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I love the framing of the scene as he's talking about that. He's talking, he's interacting with children, right? So it's this whole thing where, like, you can tell all of his intent is just to try and protect the children. And, like, you know, he has he has a, a strong sense of he has to protect them and actually cares for them. Because even then, it's, like, positive, like, he's trying to, to play with them. It's not just, like, he's trying to put a cage around them. But... It, yeah, to your point, at the same time, like, it's getting away from him what he's actually trying to do. And then even his, you know, at what cost is this? Even his personal cost, because his, he's losing touch with his daughter because, excuse me, you know, the mother, I forget what her name, uh, V. V talks about, you know, your father and you used to have something. Like, I never had that with you, but I've just seen it go away. And then she has another moment where, you know, it's her and Shaw in the bed. She's like, what, you think music is what's going to stop? Like, they don't have sexual urges without music? Like, what are you talking about here? And, like, even then you see the two of them, you know, the cost of their relationship as it's moved further from. Like, that's so much more interesting what's going on with him and his, what he's losing in this you know, what he's personally lost in a losing battle to, for the morality of the town, when in reality, the town probably it wasn't corrupt to begin with. It's just, again, as you're saying, he's he's grieving. His son died, and he's trying, you know, what can he? What could he have done to prevent that? And I love V uh, in this movie because I, she really nails a point, basically saying, like, hey, you're, you're great when you're talking to your congregation and you're giving these big speeches, it's the one-on-one -on -one where you're lacking. And, mm -hmm. you know, he says that, you know, she says, you know, you and, and uh, Ariel used to be so close. They had so much to talk about. I was almost jealous. And he literally says, you know, sometimes you run out of things to say. And they call it back at the end of the movie where he still, when they go to the dance to check up on him, and he has this moment where he doesn't really know what to say. And she kind of points out like, well, yeah, we're back to one on one. And now you're struggling to communicate again. So there really mm -hmm. was a through line and a character arc with him that I did not see coming. And to your point, the, the missed opportunity when he's at the dinner table with Ren. Speaking of character arcs, what's the deal with Ren's father? Like it got some throwaway dialogue, like he wanted to do more to prevent his father from leaving. Mm -hmm. And somehow he's comparing that to Shaw's son. Like that was a good scene, but there's not enough of a character arc on Ren for it to really be a, a two way street. I also thought it was interesting the way that he he delivers that that scene. I didn't think his mother should have been the person he was talking to. I think it would have been more impactful if he was talking to the reverend. If that's him talking about like, you know, my father and I'm fucking up my chop shop hard right now. Um, if, <laughs> if he's talking about like, you know, that whole thing, like my father literally abandoned me and left. But what you don't realize is you're still here and abandoning your daughter like that to me that would have been way more impactful like listen i know what she's going through you might you know you might not have left him left her physically but you're you're just as bad as what my dad was my deadbeat dad was you know 
And like I said, this movie is so, it was so close. It's just like, again, I think if they had just thrown out a couple dances um, and put in a little bit more, I'm like, it could have, it could have really pushed this movie to, to another place where I'm just like, this movie was so close to actually being something really, really cool. You know, it's just, it's, I don't know if somehow they accidentally did all that stuff and it's like well at the core this is supposed to be a dance movie so we can't get rid of the dances like well maybe we can make another dance movie like dirty dancing comes out in a couple years like why don't why don't we go ahead and let's just let's just go ahead and make this in like an actual like oscar bait movie in the 80s yeah did you have anything else on on shaw um i did think you know the, the whole shaw's frank redemption i did think it was a little abrupt at the end. The sermon um, that he, he gave was, you know, maybe a little on the nose. It's like, okay, this is, he's now come full circle. So now he's going to, you know, tell the congregation, I, I guess, essentially like back off, let the kids have their dance. Um, but as we kind of went in with Miss, I'll go ahead and uh, clean up misguided adults as well. I just thought, honestly, the the villain of this movie, if anybody, was the bow tie dude who actually staged the book burning. Like he, he was, again, even he, I think, was just he's that that quintessential person was like he's taken what a charismatic person such as the reverend has said and then twisted it and manipulated it even more into something grotesque and monstrous and then run with it you know that's you know as we said before the reverend his intent and how it got away mr bowtie is actually i i think the the real villain who's trying to to basically keep use the the power to corrupt the town and essentially you know yeah. And, and to your point, though, it's such a half-baked execution that basically the Reverend just shows up to the book burning and is like, take your ass home. And he's like, OK, all right. And then that's <laughs> yeah, over. Yeah, puts his hand over his shoulder like, let's let's go talk this out. Like, we we shouldn't be doing this. So, yeah, I, I got the sinister intent of that character, but it, it was almost by, I guess, pure accident because the, the movie just pays it lip service at best. Again, so that we can, you know, play Kenny Loggins for the fourth time. Yeah. Well, and even even the panel, it's like it's almost like a naive sinister, right? It's like it's not for him to be taken down that quickly. It's almost one of those like again, he's not your mustache twirling villain who's just looking to control the town. Like it's not. It's just one of those where he got a taste of power and now he's and just think, he's trying to use that. I think he was even looking to Shaw like, hey, aren't, aren't you proud of me? And then once he realizes, yeah. like, no, no, I'm not proud of you. This is not my intent at all you can kind of see the deflation in that the bow tie guy's eyes. So yeah, I don't think he's mm. a mustache twirling villain. I think that he thought that it would gain him favor with the Reverend. Yep. So yeah, I think that probably clears up those two. So we have MTV whiplash and super bad. Uh, do you have any desires where you'd like to go next? Um, well, super bad at MTV, they kind of overlap. So let me just say, we'll start with MTV. You're a big fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, much as I, and I'm sure you're aware, but they they like to bring in A-list directors like, you know, Ryan Coogler, Taika Waititi, Chloe Zhao. But a lot of times they bring those directors in to focus on the story. And separately, they have like a pre-viz team that are working on the fights kind of independent of the rest of the movie. Uh, I think mm -hmm. in one case, I, I want to say the internals, it was almost... They basically told the director, hey, these are your action scenes. Just make sure your story can ramp up to these action scenes. <laughs> it, yeah. it feels like 
this movie is that, but it's, it's, instead of the cinematic fights and the CGI fest, they just have points where they're like, hey, every 20 minutes, we have to have something that can be turned into a music video for MTV. So <laughs> as you say that, I, I totally agree with that. When she pulls, gives... When Ariel gives Rin the music box, I had to, in the movie, because that kind of shit irritates me, I had to actually Google what the song on the music box was, because I'm like, am I supposed to know what this song is? Like, is that a classic song? I'm like, no, it was, it, was a, it was almost in paradise. I'm like, it was a Kenny Loggins song that appears later in the movie. I'm like, why? Like, if you're going to play a music box, you need to know what the song is. Because, like, other than the fact, it's like, it's just a music box. I'm like, but it's a music box. <laughs> like this song means something and if i haven't i don't think almost in paradise had come on yet so i had no idea what the tune was so i said i had to look like because i couldn't move on with the movie until i knew what that tune was and i'm like oh this is just it's somehow she got a music box with a song that came out this year (laughs) i mean i didn't realize they had etsy back then but okay cool um I think the the fight dance in the warehouse is the most egregious example. Um, <laughs> but there are multiple times in this movie, Brett, where like a scene will cut. And I don't know if the, the film stock is changing. I don't I couldn't tell you technically what is happening, but I'm like, oh, I can see this is a clear cut. Like, I'm just waiting. This will date me. But back in the day, Brett, do you remember on MTV when the music video would start? Down in the lower right hand corner, you'd get the name of the artist, <laughs> the album that it yeah. was on. I just kept. They still do that. They still do, do that. that. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, I kept okay. waiting for those to pop up because it was just so glaringly obvious what the intent was. And <laughs> let me just tell you, they made for cool music videos. I'm sure in 1984, if this shit came on MTV, I, I would have gone wild. But from a narrative standpoint, it just breaks up any flow. Like we've just been sitting here discussing how. At the core of this movie, it's a a grieving father getting over the death of a child and how he's impacting the rest of the town through his grief. But but put that on pause because Kenny Loggins has got a song to promote. So, Travis, I think all of these are just we're going to wind up just doing free form this week on the show because that's exactly what Whiplash is about. This movie it goes from high to low so like you're saying those hard cuts like and it starts the beginning of the movie the opening the title sequence is footloose with all of the just dancing feet and then it immediately cuts into a fiery sermon from the reverend shaw and like that's that is exactly the rest of the pacing for this movie is it gives you something fun and uplifting and then immediately something like ariel being abused by her father or by her boyfriend and getting a black eye and you're just like what the like it is just an ad like when you talk about a roller coaster like this movie is a roller coaster where it is just constantly you know even the dance it's okay at the end the dance everybody's fun having fun immediately to outside a confrontation where everybody's fighting back to everybody party like it is just immediate like they just they do not know how to just have a neutral scene it is just High energy, positivity, high energy, low, like negativity, like throughout the entire movie. I'm just like, oh, my God, like I'm getting seasick on this movie. Yeah, let, let's <laughs> emotionally seasick. Let's have a fun scene where he teaches Willard to dance. Let's have another montage. But then you go home and find out that, you know, Ren's uncle's business is going under because nobody will go there because of his actions. And his mom just got fired and a brick just got thrown through the window. Uh, but yeah, he's teaching Willard how to dance. 
Travis, not only that, again, I believe in all movies intent, right? It's not just that brick is thrown through the window of this home. It is thrown into the little girl's bedroom. And I'm like, this is dark. Yeah, a foot <laughs> to the right or a foot to the left. And one of those kids is dead. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm just like, you could have chosen. It could have gone through the living room. But the director chose it is going through the little girl's bedroom. And I'm just like, this is horrifying. And that's what I'm talking about. This movie gets like is oddly dark at moments for a movie that I thought like that I associate with Kenny Loggins Footloose. (laughs) And Brad, I don't think we've even discussed the fact that Ariel's got a death wish. Like she is doing everything she can to fucking die. Um, I can only think of the beginning sequence when she decides she's going to stand between the two vehicles. But what else? What else is she? Uh, she when suicidal? she stands in front of the train and waits oh, till Ren yeah, ne- ne- pushes her ne- out ne- of the way. Never mind. Yeah, nope. That was that was pretty apparent. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, and did you notice the weird subtext of them basically calling her the town whore multiple times? Oh, I don't think there was subtext. I mean, the uh, Willard says, I think she kisses a lot of people. So I don't think there was anything subtle about it. Well, and then later he's like, yeah, you know, I get the feeling you've been kissed a lot. I'm like, what is the point of this plot line? Again, there's so yeah, much why are stuff. We slut shaming yeah, her? there's so much stuff yeah. going on in this movie just below the surface. The first time, like, her and Chuck are in the woods and her pants are undone, I'm like, oh, they are, like, heavily implying that they just had sex. And then later in the movie, they confirm, oh, no, they are definitely, like, it wasn't like they're just mutual masturbation. Like, it is straight up, like, she is, like, on him. I'm like, okay, like, don't have a problem with it. Didn't realize that's where they were going with this character. Also, I love that the whole town knows that, but the Reverend doesn't seem to think there's anything like, don't tell me you're not a virgin, like, uh, home dog. I wonder, and the problem is, like, again, because so much of this movie is supposed to be a a result of her brother's death. I'm like, is this all her craving attention because her brother died and she hasn't been able to get it? Or was she kind of always this way? Granted, she would have been, what, eight at that time. It's 10 years ago, but like we have no context of the relationship she had prior to this movie, at which point she's already like walking out, you know, and 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 hanging out with with. Yeah. (laughs) Well said, Brett. Well said. Yeah, thank you. I really. Yeah. But yeah. And I brought up my last five point was super bad. You know, super space bad. This movie does, again, the best part of this movie is the Reverend and his family and how he's dealing with everything. But the movie also still tries to hit all those generic high school movie beats. And Mm -hmm. the movie really suffers for it. Like the whole Chuck subplot, I just could have done without that because it's ultimately going to get resolved at the end with apparently not only is is Kevin Bacon a gymnast, but he's mastered the art of gymnastics fighting as well. Mm-hmm. As he d- yeah. run- Well, at that point, it's just dance fighting, I think. So <laughs> I just don't care. Like, I'm like, did they outlaw gymnastics too? Because I feel like most of his dancing is just gymnastics to a beat. So at a certain point, like, I feel like you have to outlaw one if you outlaw the other. Yeah, and uh, I mean, we haven't really stated the, the obvious here. If there is a a DUI crash that kills high school children probably just ban liquor. Like Mm -hmm. weird choice to ban dancing and be so fixated on that and and not just 
booze, but yeah, I, I digress. Well, I mean, if you, I, yeah, as we get into the, the rest of this movie just being weird, I love that dancing has been banned for 10 years, but as soon as the prom <laughs> dance starts, every high schooler in the town knows every single choreographed dance move. Like, I get Willard having to learn them, but, like, how does everyone else know what all of these dances are if no one's been allowed to do it for 10 years? Like, it's just insane to me. Like, is there a fight club where, like, an underground dance ring where, like, oh, the first rule about dance club is you don't talk about dance club? I mean, you say they instantly start, you know, cutting a rug, but no, Brett, they spend, uh, you know, there's a whole montage of them cleaning up the mill uh, so presumably, if we're taking this realistically, it probably took those kids a whole afternoon of manual labor to get it cleaned up. And then they're all just prepared to sit around and look at each other. There's even like a, a, mm -hmm. a, a choice to have a character picking his nose and wiping it on his pants. I, I got a <laughs> chuckle at how random that was. Um, but yeah, I just love the fact that they went to all that trouble to clean up the mill and they just were going to sit there and look at each other all night. Well, beyond that, so it takes Ren and Ariel to get everything started. Granted, apparently there's two white b-boys in the crowd that can break dance. That just apparently in this small town, they know how to break dance, you know, which I looked up was around for about a decade, started in New York. But I'm just like, again, don't feel like this small town. The Internet doesn't exist at this time, so I don't know how they know how to b-boy. <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> fucking barn. The, it's it's. I caught a license plate and, and you see mountains in one scene. This was shot in Utah. Yeah, I don't think Utah <laughs> yeah. in 84 was big on breakdancing yet. <laughs> so, and not only that, breakdancing, it's not like breakdancing is one of those things you just try the first time and you look good doing it. Like, I'm, it takes a little bit of practice. Now, speak for yourself, Brett. I, I came out of the womb <laughs> breakdancing. <laughs> um, so, as we talk about what well, I think one of the most interesting and endearing scenes of the movie was Willard's dance, um, him being taught to dance montage, right? I actually really enjoyed that. I thought it made a lot of sense. That was not originally scripted in this movie. They actually added that because the actor who played <laughs> played Willard, uh, Chris Penn, really could not dance to save his life. So th because I guess they had to teach him how to dance, they decided to go ahead and incorporate that into the movie. But I'm like, that's a very important scene in this movie, him learning to dance. I think that's very important to both him and Ren's relationship, his character arc. You know, actually showing him learning to dance and going through the steps. I'm like, yeah, that was not originally in this movie. Well, that's interesting because they set it up when he, which another thing that doesn't make sense. Ren is brand new to this town, uh, but he also knows a good uh, dance spot 100 miles away randomly. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they set up Willard not being able to dance there. So I wonder they were... By the end of the movie, was he just going to be like everybody else in the town? And oops, it's magic. I can dance really well now. I suppose. I don't know. Also, where did all those kids get tuxes? I mean, I feel like if no one's going to prom for 10 years, like there's no tux in a small town. Like you can't succeed in that market. You can't be a tux guy. I mean, I mean, it's the, it's the same place they got all their dirt bikes spread. Yeah. I also love that they got into the tussle at the end and their tuxedos were covered in dirt. And then as soon as the fight's over, they are spick and span clean as a whistle. <laughs> it's like like they had never been in a confrontation at all. But uh, 
yeah a lot of a lot of weird stuff and ariel just being a punching bag in the movie i just the first time she gets hit i was stunned the second time she got hit i'm like what are they doing here and the third time i'm like what is happening is this, is this just a thing for her does she like being hit like what is happening yeah i was I when chuck was when she was fighting chuck and she got knocked to the ground i was like holy shit her face is bloody there's a scene that's like low angle on her face with like chuck's shoes in the foreground and for a second i was like he is gonna kick her in the face and this dark ass movie is going to get a whole lot darker. Thank God that he didn't. But yeah, it doesn't feel like. It, and that's the one thing I wish that the the Reverend had not hit his daughter because it, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard to come back from that and be redeeming. And he he makes a point to his wife. You know, I've never hit anybody before. And it's like, OK, so you start with your 17 year old daughter like. Well, neither. If you're going to do that, there needs to be more weight to what just happened. Like, the mom needed to do something. Like, there should have been more that came out of that. But two things of the fight scene I thought were interesting. I was very surprised Rin didn't come off from off off uh, screen and then get in there and fight Chuck. I was surprised that Chuck drove away. I was like, wow, it, today I feel like any movie that would have done this scene, somebody would have intervened and then, like, helped her back. The other thing I thought was insane with this movie, the Reverend is constantly on her ass about, Ariel, where are you? I don't know where you've been. Uh, are you drinking? Are you doing music? This and I don't like this Rin kid. She has a black eye from her confrontation with Chuck, and there is no scene where the Reverend gets involved with that. Like, he is up her ass about everything, and she comes home with a black eye, and we don't, as the audience, get to know anything that happens. Like, that's an important conversation that does not happen in this movie when she is literally beat by another, you know, by one of her peers and Shaw, the Reverend Shaw doesn't do anything about it. Like, I just, like I said, that's one of those. I'm like, that, there is a missing scene that desperately needs to be in this movie to, to address that. Yeah, I feel like there's a few cases of something has been lost in the edit. But, I mean, not only does her father not say anything, no, nobody says anything. Like, even, even Ren, like, Ren's kind of got the nerve when she shows up with the black eye and, and he kind of just snaps at her like, this is not going to be about me versus your father. I'm like, dude, the girl you like, like her face is a bloody mess and, and you're like yelling mm -hmm. at her like moments after she got her ass beat. It's just tonally weird that that the, the way the violence uh, towards Ariel is treated in this movie is just very bizarre. Mm hmm. Yes. Totally, totally agree. Um, if you don't have anything else for five points, we will do, uh, you know, second trilogy in a row. We have a special edition six point. I think we just because we did call this the tune in trilogy, we do have to at least talk about, if nothing else, Footloose, because that is the the namesake and the song that was created for this. Uh, one of the most iconic, I think, movie songs ever. I mean, I think you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who doesn't know what the song Footloose is. Yeah, which which was your favorite time they played it? The first, second, or third time? <laughs> uh, I don't think tonally it fits this movie at all. Uh, it is a very upbeat song. It, I mean, they bookend the movie with it, but I, I do not think that tonally the Kenny Loggins... I don't think Kenny Loggins should have been near this project, if I'm on. I love Kenny Loggins. Do not think he should have been writing music for this movie. I also don't think he put much effort into the lyrics of Footloose. Because if you Footloose, 
Footloose. Kick off your Sunday shit. Like, at one point I realized he's just throwing out random names of people. I'm just like, <laughs> other than the chorus, this song actually fucking sucks. And like, to your point, does not fit the tone of this movie. Uh, but it's fun. And the music in general I is iconic. No other way to say it. Holding out for a hero, even though the tractor scene's ridiculous. Uh, like you said, heartwarming. The montage where Willard is dancing. The Let's hear it for the boy. I love that montage. I also just, as you know, I don't understand how the tractor chicken was going to prove anything because that is Chuck's family's tractors. So at the end of the day, Ren has nothing to lose by wrecking the tractor and they're not going fast enough for, I feel like, him to be launched from the tractor. So, like, if it had been me, I'm like, you've got nothing to lose just ramming the shit out of Chuck on his tractor. Well, another question, since we're talking about the tractor scene, uh, Ren asks one of the high school classmates, like, hey, has anybody ever died from this? And he's like, no. Well, just one person. Why didn't the town ban tractors after that? Oh, you make a good point. Also, I don't understand why they jumped off the tractors and you couldn't turn the wheel. Like, the whole time, like, Ren is trying to jump off the tractor. I'm like, you have time. You just turn the wheel, dude. Like, if <laughs> it's chicken. That's the way chicken works. You don't jump. Like, if your two cars go, you don't jump out of the car and they still collide. Like, you turn the wheel. That's, that is what chicken is about. Yeah. So. And this working class town where jobs are scarce and it doesn't look like the economy is robust. I like that Chuck is willing to destroy two family tractors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, one of them being a John Deere. But uh, I think <laughs> I think that about does it for me. For five points. For the the five point inspection. Yeah. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> one last note. Did you think Kevin Bacon came off a little old for being a high school senior? It's it's hard for me because and the. The older the movie is, it's harder for me to discern people's ages. So it, it didn't stand out to be noticeably compared to every other kid in the movie. So funny enough, I, th I believe the actress who played Ariel, I think was only 9 and 11 years younger than John Lithgow and uh, what was her face? Uh, Diane Weist. West. Wait, wait ex say that again? She was how much younger? nine and 11 years younger than the people that played her parents. What? <laughs> yeah. I mean, she did look older, but how old was she when this was filmed? Uh, let's see. Lori Singer was born in 57. John Lithgow was born in, do you want to take a guess? Uh, 1943. 45. So that's was what about 11, 12 yeah, years wow. apart there. And then Diane West, 1946. Wow. I, wow. So, <laughs> yeah, there was a tight gap between <laughs> them. <laughs> I think that concludes five point inspection. So I think we can go ahead and do our next segment Blue Book. All right, Travis, I'm going to give you the sticker value of this here flick. It was $8 million, we'll just say $8 million estimated. $8.2 million is what it costs to make this here feature film. Do you want to guess how much it made? It's basically the same number. Do you want to guess how much it made U.S. and Canada? 
$42 million. $80 million. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Uh, it only made an additional four grand overseas, so it's basically the same number. I guess it was a very small market that it was released. I don't know. Uh, but yes, no, it definitely... I did not realize how successful this movie was. Tenfold. Yeah, that's a major hit. Mm-hmm. I, I'm saving uh, I'm saving my reaction to that because it kind of ties into my time capsule later. So if I'm, if I'm underwhelming here on the front end, it's for a reason. Got it. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so tag and title, my favorite segment of them all. Drive oh, I apologize. I didn't look if there were any alternate titles for this movie, but it's too late uh for that. Uh so taglines, Travis, I am going to give you an official tagline for this movie. I'm also going to give you a tagline I found to an adjacent movie. And then a tagline I created myself. What I need you to do is tell me which of these three is an official tagline for 1984's Footloose. Here are, are you ready? I've kicked off my Sunday shoes. I'm ready. All right. More fun than you're allowed to shake a leg at. All he wanted to do was dance. And dancing to the beat of their hearts. One of those taglines is Dirty Dancing. I just can't decide if it's the second one or the third one. Uh, I tipped my hand. I tipped my hand at the beginning of the episode. I was like, ah, I shouldn't have brought up Dirty Dancing. Uh, so you're right. You're you're going to know the adjacent movie. The question is, do you know what tagline it belongs to? I'm going to say mm, Dancing to the Beat of Their Hearts. I'm going to say that's Dirty Dancing. Final answer. All right, uh, you would be right. Ooh. And uh, give me the second one. All he wanted to do was dance. The time. All he wanted to do was dance. I'm going to say that's... Or... Okay, give me the other one. Or, more fun than you're allowed to shake a leg at. I'm going to say you're trying to trip me up, because that one's so fucking corny. I'm going to guess you made it up. Uh... So he just wants to dance is an official tagline from Footloose. You nailed it this week, ah! sir. You got all yeah in the bonus. You got all three in the bonus. Um, additional taglines for this movie were one kid, one town, one chance. The music is on his side, and I believe the tagline used on the posters. He's a big city kid in a small town. They said he'd never win. He knew he had to. Which is funny because he. I didn't. was gonna say he actually did not. <laughs> yeah, he lost. So, thank God for the spirit of the town reincarnated into <laughs> the boss at the grain mill. Uh, go figure. The spirit of the town would hang out at the edge of town in a grain mill, right? <laughs> uh, all right, sir. Well, I think that brings us to time capsule. So it's interesting that you pointed out that this was such a smashing success because this, I thought the 80s, the early 80s was just full of high school movies and, and maybe they were getting made a lot, but I wanted to look at how many 
super successful high school adjacent movies were in the 80s. Uh, so I looked at from 1981 to 1985, how many of the top 25 grossing movies of that year were what you would call high school movies. So in 1981, there was only one, Brett. It was Endless Love, and it came in at 10th at the box office. 82, there was still only one. That was Porky's. It came in fifth. Uh, funny little note, 82 is when Fast Times at Ridgemont High came out, but it was only the 29th highest grossing movie of that year. Mm. 83, there is still only one in the top 25, and that was Porky's 2, which was 23rd. Then, boom, 1984, the year of Footloose, you have three in the top 25. The Karate Kid at 5th, Footloose at 7th, and Red Dawn at 20th. And then by 1985, there were four, uh, with Back to the Future being the number one movie. Uh, Mask, starring Eric Stoltz, uh, 12. Breakfast Club was 13. Teen Wolf was 23rd, and Weird Science was actually 35th. So 84 seemed to be when the teen movie craze exploded. Uh, so it's clear that Footloose had played a big role in, in that genre booming for the rest of the 80s. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, I, I guess they kind of ushered in that subgenre. So... I have an interesting trivia tidbit from IMDb that I cannot, I have to assume that this is false and someone is trolling, but I have to bring it up to you. So according to the IMDb trivia, this is the third eighties movie to show blood. Prior to this, it was national lampoons vacation in 1983. And the second was a Christmas story in 1983 as well. So according to this stat, up until this movie, only two other movies in the 80s had shown blood. I don't that, I don't know what they're trying to say with this trivia fact. Like PG-13 rated movie? Like there had to have been movies in the 80s prior to this that showed blood. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure Rocky 2 and maybe 3 were out before this and both of those show blood. So I, I have no idea what that trivia is talking about. Yeah, I, all I can think is maybe it's supposed to be PG, but I can't imagine National Lampoon's Vacation was a PG movie. Yeah, I don't know. Just thought I'd bring it up because I thought it was baloney. But I believe that brings us to our final segment, Chop Shop. Are you ready to do some choppy chop? I am ready. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and go first because mine's going to take about 30 seconds to go through. Oh, wow. Um, as I alluded to, not even alluded, I was about as subtle as Ariel being the town whore. <laughs> um, I, I got Oscar bait and thought this movie was damn near Oscar bait already. So I didn't go to great lengths to change or modify this movie. All I did is... 
I have five bullet points of scenes I think needed to be like I would swap. I would take the dancing out of this movie, like the the warehouse dance fight um, or just whatever punch dancing him getting his frustration out and basically add a couple of these scenes in. And I think it would have taken it to where it needed to be to be an Oscar worthy flick. Um, so I'll just go ahead and, and go to the five of them. Uh, the first one being, I think we needed a scene with Ariel and her brother, maybe a memory or something like that, or her talking to Ren about her brother just to establish what their relationship was and what impact that had on her. Because a lot of this movie, honestly, it's about loss is what this movie is. And whether, you know, most of, you know, they're trying dance is how Ren deals with his loss and frustration, you know, with his dad, a dad basically abandoning him and his mother and them having to move to this small town or, you know, uh, Ariel's self-destructive tendencies or the Reverend Shaw basically ignoring his family and, and focusing on the town as a whole. All of it is essentially them coping with loss. Um, so I think we needed a, a scene about with Ariel about her brother. Um, I think we needed a scene where a reflection of, of the Reverend or of, uh, sorry, what I talked about before with the Reverend when he's doing that speech and it's the same speech he's delivering. I think if they did that same kind of mini montage and every time you see it, like there's a little bit less life in him, like you can tell he's almost bored with it or like, again, that the point where he doesn't, the audience perceives that he doesn't even necessarily believe what he's saying. Like he's just almost on autopilot, just trying to, to get through the day to day. Um, I think we needed a, a scene that expanded on Ariel and her mother and their relationship a little bit, maybe the envy, or maybe I don't know if the brother favored her, the, you know, his mom V or not. I will say, I didn't say this before. One of my favorite scenes in the whole movie is when the woman gets up at the town hall and V just goes, sit down. Yes. I'm like, I'm like, V's got some power. I want to see more of that. Like V, V has some power on the town. She, yeah, she only uses it when she needs to, but like, yeah, it was fantastic. Even the delivery of it was, was perfect, spot on. Um, but I think we needed that. Um, I think we needed a scene where the Reverend has to confront the morality, morality of the town um, through Ariel's abuse. And I think a lot of that is, you know, he's been so hard on music and, you know, that's, the town, if, if the town doesn't have the music and the, the rock or the, the dancing and the alcohol and all that, all, all of that is essentially what's causing the corruption of the town. But then he has to kind of come to terms with, well, they didn't have any of this stuff. And Ariel still wound up with a black guy, still wound up being attacked by by her boyfriend. So in, you know, her not being a virgin, which you know it's a thing for the Reverend. I, I don't think that that's a moral consequence or anything like that. But again, for him having to essentially realize that whatever what he's doing is futile and it actually isn't you know affecting and then you know shortly after that will be him stopping the book burning and last thing was what i talked about was we needed uh rin to bring up his deadbeat dad to the reverend as opposed to his mom and basically repair or comparing the reverend to his dad that yes his dad might have physically left but the reverend has you know left ariel and his family long ago regardless if they reside in the same house and i think if you you know with some some good writing um even the talent in this movie i think could have delivered those lines um well to make this an oscar movie I, I don't think you needed to switch out any of the actors or actresses to make that happen but i think if you had put in those five scenes i think it would have it would have made this a much more i think it would have made true to what the actual movie is like how dark tonally it is like i said the dancing just winds up being weird um a weird juxtaposition with 
with a lot of the other stuff that's going on in this movie. Yeah, and I'd be willing to bet, because I almost used this as my time capsule, but this was, I guess, partially based on a true story. I guess, like, in the late mm-hmm. 70s, there was a town that had banned dancing. It really feels to me, like, if I had to pinpoint why this movie is so disjointed and bizarre, is that there was probably a script floating around about Reverend Shaw and how he's dealing with loss of, of, a, of a son. And then they kind of were like, Ooh, this, this town that banned dancing, that's a good idea. Let's staple that onto the script because yeah, the dancing mm-hmm. and the emotional core are miles apart in this movie. Uh, so yeah, you're, well, yeah, but it just needs, like you said, it just needs a few tweaks and it, it, they still could have pulled mm-hmm. it off. Yeah. And for my research, the town that they base this on, like dancing had been, Band for 90 years so it wasn't like oh some the reverend's son died and you know it caused this and only that the high school succeeded the high school did get them to lift the ban on dancing so it's like go figure it they actually and that's another thing that's weird about this i don't understand why they just didn't let ren succeed why him and the high schoolers didn't get them to lift the ban because essentially the same thing happens the reverend comes to to grips with all of it says that they should be allowed to dance, even though he might not necessarily agree with it, but it's not his place to stop it. And the only other person that I think would have stood in the way was Bowtie Boy, and Bowtie Man also seems to have realized that what he was doing was not the right course of action with the book burning. So I'm like, it feels like they got the res- the resolution they wanted without actually giving them the the W. Like, I just, it's very strange that they wrote it that way. Yeah, I wonder if there was some sort of logistic issue with filming like they couldn't find a high school gym to use so they're like let's we need an excuse for let's use the grain mill set again i Mm. I have no idea but yeah it it makes zero sense yeah so but yeah sorry to to skip out a little bit on chop shop i just this week i just didn't think it it warranted trying to rewrite the whole thing i think more it was more of an exercise like this it's a shame because this movie was just it was so close to being being much deeper you know it's uh it's essentially <laughs> you you kind of walked if for anybody who's been to the beach you've walked through the beach and now you're standing on the sandbar it's like oh well i i guess we could have stayed in the deep end but we just went a little too far with the dancing and now we're back in shallow territory yeah there, there was absolutely the skeleton of a, a great movie in here as it stands it's more iconic than it is actually a great movie mm-hmm So, uh, sir, I will hand it to you. Yeah, this week I uh, I get my inaugural run at Sci-Fi. Um, this is mm-hmm. my first go round. I I made a choice, Brad. At first, I was doing the typical "let's set it in 2049," and mm-hmm. I abandoned that. So this is still set in 1984. Um, I had two main sci-fi inspirations for this movie. Uh, was one of them life because i kind of expected it to be called tentacle loose and it was going to be calvin instead uh, of their feet well damn it if i thought about that that's what you would be getting Brad. <laughs> um, the problem is you have too many fucking cliffhangers <laughs> out there to even remember what to tack on to anymore oh <laughs> well brett <laughs> you're about to add one more onto the pile of cliffhangers here we go so inspiration yeah, son of a bitch were uh, Stephen King's Tommyknockers and okay. uh, Alex Gardland's Annihilation. <clears throat> uh, so 
we've changed Shaw Moore from Reverend to Governor. He is the governor of Texas in the year 1984. Seven years prior, his only son was killed in a car accident after a uh, night at a pool party. Since then, Moore's power as governor has only increased, uh, and he pushes a platform of religion that has enacted, you know, anti-drinking, anti-drugs, and for some reason, anti-dancing, even though it was a pool party this time. Uh, as his power and approval rating grows in his home state, Shaw begins the early stages of a possible presidential campaign. Uh, Ren McCormick is, again, a high school senior who moves to Shaw State. Uh, Ren quickly befriends Willard uh, and has a friendly, flirtatious relationship with uh, the governor's daughter, Ariel. Um, Chuck will be in here just because we still got to make it kind of a high school movie, you know, tractor, chicken, all that. Um, we're going to have uh, Ren drive Ariel Willard and, and Rusty to a country bar 100 miles away, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that's where we're going to download the, you know, her brother died. That's why her, her father has enacted all of this. Uh, once again, Willard's going to be embarrassed at his inability to dance. Uh, and Ren's going to give him the private lessons as, as seen in this movie. And Willard is going to start to grow confident and allows him to pursue and flirt with Rusty. Um, picking up with uh, Governor Moore, he said his private residence and a staff advisor is discussing his upcoming campaign when suddenly Moore has a severe migraine. The staffer asks Moore if he'd like her to call someone, but he refuses and tells her she can go home for the day. After the aide leaves, Moore descends into his basement and accesses a hidden room. Within the room, there's a wooden crate in the corner, and between the slats of the crate emanates a strange green glow. This seems to alarm Moore. We cut to Wren and Ariel at the grain mill on the outskirts of town, and uh, Wren has a portable speaker playing upbeat music, pitching his idea of holding the prom here. Ariel's on board. Before the two can go into detail, Governor Moore's motorcade pulls up. Moore demands that his daughter wait in one of the SUVs while he talks with Wren. Moore asks uh, what Wren's plans are after high school, and Wren tells him he's narrowed uh, his list of college choices, but he's now also considering Georgetown because that's where Ariel's going. Moore tells Wren that while he admires the boy's gumption, he'd be better suited to attend somewhere else other than Georgetown. Moore elaborates, telling him that uh, he can use his connections to help Wren, putting his arm around the boy, doing his best to seem fatherly, but Wren pushes back, albeit politely, stating he'll do what's best for himself and that Moore should focus on the well-being of his daughter. Uh, Moore appears to be stunned by Wren's pushback and quickly drops the friendly father facade. It's treason, then, <laughs> he replies. <laughs> With that, Moore gets back in the SUV containing his daughter and the motorcade drives off. Uh, cut to a montage of Wren, Ariel, Willard, and Rusty all preparing the inside of the mill for the prom, which is three weeks away. Interspersed with the prom prep montage, we'll follow Moore, whose headaches worsen, and his presidency straw poll numbers start to dip. Moore finishes a frustrating call with one of his corporate investors who tell him that more and more young people in the state are rallying against Moore. Moore returns to the secret room in his basement, but as he opens the entrance, the whole room is now illuminated in the bright green light, temporarily blinding Moore. As his vision returns, he sees a tall humanoid silhouette staring back at him. Now we're going to cut to a flashback from seven years earlier. 
Governor Moore is finishing a round of golf with his buddies by enjoying a few cocktails at the clubhouse bar. He departs as the sun begins to set, and as Moore is driving, he gets a cell phone call from his son, Derek. Did we ever get the son's name in this movie? No, that's the thing. It's like, again, the son is such a pivotal part of this movie, and we know nothing about him. Yeah, I think it, you, you brought it up in your chop shop, how we should be able to focus on Ariel's relationship, what kind of relationship they had. Sarah Jessica Parker, who plays Rusty, she says more about her brother than Ariel does. Like, like Humphrey, mm -hmm. he, he was like Humphrey Bogart, but taller. Like, at least that gives us a tiny idea of how the brother was, but I digress. Um, so more, as Moore's driving, he gets a cell phone call from, well, I don't know how he has a cell phone call in 1984. You can tell I forgot that part. Mm. He gets a call at the pay phone at the country club before he leaves. <clears throat> so yeah, fix it. Uh, <laughs> so his son Derek calls him and Derek informs his father that he was at a pool party and got into an argument with his girlfriend who drove them to the party. So he's left and he's he's walking and he asks his father to pick him up. Uh, we cut to Derek being picked up along the roadside by his father. Derek notices that his father is is pretty sloppy drunk. Derek asks his father if he should drive, but his father laughs it off and peels out. It's fully dark now, and Moore races along the country road in his sports car. He approaches a hairpin turn as he sloppily gives relationship advice to his son, when suddenly Derek yells out, Watch out, Dad! Moore looks up to see a deer in the road and swerves, taking the sports car off the road and down an embankment into the woods. When the car finally stops its tumble, it comes to rest on an angular piece of metallic material. The woods are illuminated by the brake lights, emergency flashers of the car, but soon a bright green glow begins emanating from the metallic material. Moore looks over at his son, who is barely breathing. Uh, Moore then looks directly at the glowing green light and passes out. Back in the present day, it's prom night at the mill. Ren and Ariel are dancing, same for Willard and Rusty. Even Chuck seems to have buried the hatchet with the town folk uh, and is having you know, fun at the dance. Just then, four local police cars and the governor's SUV come flying into the field outside the mill. Moore jumps out with a bullhorn telling every kid to vacate the mill as they're violating the governor's ordinance. Moore orders the PD to enter the mill and arrest everyone, but the cops are like, dude, uh, Everybody in there is a minor, and even the adults, they would only receive a citation. And incensed Moore then demands one of his secret service to enter the mill, but the agent again rebuffs Moore. Moore fully blows his top, and he runs back to his SUV, pulling a pistol from the glove compartment. He races into the mill and fires a single shot into the air. The small crowd of students flee to the exit, save for Ren and Ariel. Moore screams at his daughter for betraying him and points the gun towards her. Ren moves in front and tackles Ariel as the gun goes off. Ariel screams. Outside the mill, police rush in after hearing the commotion. We're going to cut again back to the uh, seven-year-ago flashback. The governor is asleep at his governor's mansion desk when suddenly a, growing, a glowing green light awakes him. Through Moore's POV, we see the humanoid silhouette from earlier. Moore is confused, wondering if the car crash was a dream and how he got to his office. The figure explains telepathically that right now, Moore's son is about to die as a result of his father's irresponsibility. A terrible lesson to learn, but the figure offers to help, explaining that he cannot save his son's life, but can help if only Moore agrees. Uh, the rest of the audio drops out as a weeping Moore nods his head and the figure approaches Moore's desk. Hard cut to... Hard cut to... Moore being awoken, he's again at his governor's desk, and he's awoken by a phone call. 
The voice on the other end of the phone tells him that his son has been confirmed dead, driving his father's sports car while under the influence. Cut back to the present with Ren being loaded into the ambulance and Willard telling Ren that he'll see him at the hospital. Ren asks how Ariel's doing, but Willard solemnly informs Ren that uh, Governor Moore didn't make it and Ariel is waiting for her mother to arrive. One of Moore's Secret Service agents stops uh, Ren right before the ambulance door closes. He commends Ren for his bravery, bravery and apologizes for not stopping Moore sooner. Ren says not to worry about it. The agent asks Ren if he still intends to go to Georgetown, with Ren stating that he does. The agent says he knows a few connected people in D.C. and for Ren to give him a call in the fall and offers him his card. Ren smiles and the ambulance door closes. We follow the ambulance as it pulls out of the mill with a faint green glow coming from the back windows as credits roll. <laughs> so I, I have a point to all that, but in, in true, you know, elevated sci-fi, I'm not going to say the message I was trying to get across with that, but that, that was my sci-fi depiction. Well, you know, maybe you'll continue it. Who knows? Uh, maybe we'll have somebody try and dissect it. Um, I only have one question. Go for it. The whole thing. You said there was a pool party. Mm -hmm. Right. Does, does, did you say that Rin and Ariel wound up at a pool party as well? Or was it just her brother? Uh, it was just her brother. I was just wondering if we're replacing the tractor chicken scene with chicken in the pool. <laughs> that, that, that's your big question, Brett. Yeah, yeah, that's the only thing that I, I'm really hung up on, you know, if that's how we're translating the tractor chicken scene. Now, in my version of the script that was in 2049, they were going to be on speeder bikes, but I scrapped the whole um, future piece. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Got it. Now, that makes sense. Well, I mean, we can't always just go to space in the future for sci-fi, so I appreciate you going back and, you know, set, setting a good precedent for the future. Absolutely. So, very nice, sir. I can definitely dig it. So with that, I think it's just final thoughts of a footloose. You know, it's uh, is it something you would recommend people watch, own, buy, rent, rent if you can get it for free, watched on TNT? I don't know. What's what are your final thoughts of 1984's Footloose? I keep saying you know that there was a remake, right? I do. Yeah. OK, I I honestly thought we were going to start this with at least a joke about a, another Lion King situation, but... Uh, I thought about yeah. when I sent you the opening, uh, I, I, I thought about putting Footloose parentheses 2011 opening. So <laughs> don't think I didn't think about making that joke. I just, I, I didn't. Um, as for the movie, I, when, when you uh, threw it into the ring, I was, uh, I was nervous. But I, en I enjoyed this movie. If, if you... It's one of those movies that it, it's the bad parts are so bad they're good and the good parts are actually good. So I, I would mm -hmm. give this a recommend if you're a fan of 80s movies in particular. I, I think this is a, a must watch. Um, is it squandered potential? Absolutely. But I think most anybody would at least have an enjoyable time with this movie. And and hey, if you're getting bored, don't worry, because there's going to be another montage within five minutes of where, <laughs> wherever you are in the movie. So, yeah, uh, it's a recommend. Shockingly enough, it's a recommend. 
I I am right there with you, man. I expected to watch this movie and us just dog on it. Um, and watching, it, I'm like, I. It. I think my biggest complaint about the movie is, like you said, the squandered potential. I'm like, there was so much going for it. I just wish they had taken it to the finish, like to that finish line. Like, obviously, they have their vision and they got Kenny Loggins to do a bunch of songs and, and shit like that. But I'm like, I think that there was another move. You had 80% of another better movie here and you decided to go the dance route rather than the actual theatrical version. And I don't know if that was a sign of the times. Cause I'm trying to think of like movies in the eighties. I'm like, is it just like people weren't quite ready for that type of cinema or, or not? But it is, it's one of those, I mean, if, if you were to remake this in 2022 instead of 2011, I'm like, I would take most of the movie that existed there and, and, and just tweak it. And I think it would be a fantastic movie um, for, for modern audiences. Um, my hope is I definitely recommend, I think people should watch it. I think it is definitely worth a watch. I would like it to be known for more than just Kenny Loggins. Cause I think there's a lot more in this movie worth talking about other than that song. Um, but yeah, I I remarkably I I think I thought it was a good movie. I was a good movie, and I'd watch it again. I'm not, maybe not tomorrow, but if somebody sat down and said, "Hey, do you want to watch Footloose?" I'd be like, "Yeah, go ahead, put it in. I'll watch Footloose. Not not a problem." Yeah, against all odds, this is. I mean, I know we're it's a very specific genre, but as far as '80s teen slash high school movies. I would slot this right below something like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which I I never in a million years would I have thought prior to watching this. <laughs> yeah, uh, we both went into this mostly blind. I think we both admit we'd seen scenes here and there, but yeah, watching the the movie in its entirety, I'm like, it is not at all what I was expecting. I, I had a, a lot of preconceived notions just from what I thought I knew about Footloose. Or hell, just because of the Kenny Loggins song, I thought I knew what the tone of this movie was going to be. And like, it is, that's the biggest thing I can say is anybody who's thinking about watching it, like, do not let that song put you in a false sense of what you think this movie is, because it is not that song at all. Yeah, if I could put something on the poster, I would put it's more than Kenny Loggins and dance fighting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh just gymnastics with with music so uh all righty well i think that concludes this episode so you know obviously we we thank you for joining us for another week next week we finish out our tune in trilogy with i mean i'm just gonna i i have cart in front of the horror whatever you want to like one of my absolute favorite sci-fi movies uh men in black starring men in black well, that you remember? Oh, I I can't wait. I here's my problem, Travis. This is this is gonna be the movie that I have on high a high pedestal and haven't watched in a long time, and I'm gonna go back and watch it and be like, this movie is not good. This is not what I remember. Like, I that is my fear going back and watching Men in Black because I remember very very much enjoying this movie from beginning to end, and it has probably been about ten years since I've watched it, so I'm. I think both of the sequels that came out were <laughs> weren't particularly great. It had an animated series at one point. It is based off of a comic book, so it is a comic book movie. Um, but I'm looking forward to it. I am I'm looking forward to getting back and watching Tommy Lee Jones and uh, 
Well, I can't imagine what time capsule is going to be next week, but uh, hey, you know, Will keep Smith. your fucking time capsule <laughs> out of your mouth. All right. <laughs> so, uh, any closing <laughs> closing remarks, sir? Uh, only one, and just this is more of a personal note, um, but I'll go ahead and say it on the air. I, I really like that hat, Brett. Uh, do they sell men's clothes where you got that? Let me take another sip of my Starlight Coca-Cola. Taste like space. That sounded refreshing. <laughs> somebody I was at Target the other day and somebody had a Mentos air freshener and it just it made me laugh like, ah, the fresh maker. <laughs> there's, there's just something, I don't know. All right. A small town girl and a city boy must band together with their high school. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a fucking Bruce Springsteen song already. (laughs) Just a small town girl. (laughs) She took the midnight train. God, that should have been in this movie. Maybe it wasn't out by then. I don't know. All right. Oh, no. You froze. What was with the weird subtext that she's a whore? Wait, did you freeze? Oh, yeah. Well, that'll happen when I fucking knock my Ethernet cable out of my computer. (laughs) I can't wait to put that in the bloopers. (laughs) Oh, God damn it. Sorry, the, the cat was getting close to the Ethernet cable, and I was like, bitch, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, that thing's delicate. Yeah. So. Yeah, we also didn't bring up the fact that for a, a, sco- a, a town that bans music, Chuck has still got the Pink Floyd and, like, Grateful Dead stickers in the back of his truck. 